0: Beijing's Favorite Bolshevik In this excerpt from Destination Peking, abridged and lightly edited for the China Project, author Paul French introduces us to Lev Karakan, a Bolshevik whose work, as the Soviet Union's first ambassador to China, earned him the trust of the early Chinese Republic's most powerful leaders. Written by Paul French, published in The China Project, read to you by Cliff Larson. Lev Mikhailovich Karavan's Bolshevik credentials were impeccable. His style, invariably knee-high leather boots, a Tolstoyan peasant smock, pince nez and de goatee, characterized early 1920s Moscow. A true revolutionary celebrity, often photographed with his lover, the beautiful lead ballerina of Kirov, Marina Semnova, the Italian journalist Curizio Malaparte wrote that Karakan was the handsomest man in the Soviet Union. Born in Tbilisi, Georgia, to an Armenian family in 1889, Katakan's ascendancy was swift. By 1917, he was a full member of the Bolsheviks' Revolutionary Military Council and close to Leon Trotsky. Between 1918 and 1920, he was appointed Deputy People's Commissar for Foreign Affairs with special interest in China. Nowadays, not many people remember the Karakhan Manifesto, but in July 1919, it was an important document that rather upset the apple cart of the great powers and their spheres of influence in China. Karakhan formally announced that the new Bolshevik state was relinquishing most of its unequal treaty rights in China, formerly held by Imperial Russia. All treaty ports, the Russian concession in Tianjin, modern-day Tianjin, Moscow's share of the Boxer Indemnity payments, and control of the Russian-managed China Eastern Railway, CER. Karakhan's manifesto was unsurprisingly extremely popular, with many younger Chinese urbanites feeling empowered after the May 4th demonstrations. It was a propaganda coup for the new Soviet Union, and Karakhan knew that such a move would not only improve Bolshevik-Chinese relations, but would hopefully make Marxism and Leninism a more attractive ideology in China, bolstering the emerging domestic communist movement. This analysis perhaps paints Karakhan's move too cynically. It was also, he believed, the right thing for the new Soviet state to do. Karakan hoped the manifesto would provide a solid Sino-Russian bulwark against Japanese incursion towards Russian borders, Mongolia, and even farther west into contested Xinjiang, which suffered from religious-inspired independence movements and British great game shenanigans. However, six months later, Karakan took back several of the pledges in his manifesto. Primarily, he renounced the inclusion of the China Eastern Railway. Russian rights over the railway were reaffirmed. Similarly, with boxer indemnity monies, Karakhan insisted Russia would oversee the continuing payments rather than just scrap them. Despite this climb down on the original 1919 manifesto, the general Chinese public opinion of the new Bolshevik state, Marxism, if not always Leninism, and Lev Karakhan himself remained overwhelmingly positive, if perhaps not absolute. So naturally, there was a lot of interest in China when, in 1923, it was announced that Katakan was himself coming to Beijing as the first Soviet ambassador to China. China Bolsheviks In April 1923, China was split. While sending Katakan to Beijing, the Soviet Union had also decided to politically assist Sun Yat-sen, Sun Zhongshan, who had formed a rival southern government in Guangzhou. The Soviets had skillfully, though a little precariously, made friends and were influencing both sides. Moscow sent a team of military men to help train an army in Guangdong province. In June, five Soviet officers arrived in Beijing for language training, while a veteran Bolshevik, Mikhail Grusenberg, soon known to all in China by the alias Borodin, was dispatched to China as the Soviet's principal advisor to Sun Yat sen. Grigory Votinsky who had experience in Russia's Far East and with China's earliest organized communists, took over as Moscow's principal advisor to the new Chinese Communist Party, then based in Shanghai. This was the New Communist International's China dream team of so-called Sovietniki advisors, Karakan in Beijing, Borodin in Guangzhou, and Voitinsky in Shanghai. Borodin and Votinsky's role were essentially semi-secret and somewhat covert. However, Karakhan's diplomatic post was obviously and by necessity more overt, as was his primary mission, to secure diplomatic recognition of the Soviet Union from China. In September 1923, Karakhan was waved off with full Bolshevik pomp as he took the Trans-Siberian Express into China before transferring to the contentious China Eastern Railway, passing through Harbin, Changchun, and Shenyang before arriving in Beijing. The Soviet Legation Karakhan went straight to the former Russian embassy in the heart of Beijing's legation quarter and almost opposite the American embassy. Quite what state the Russian legation was in is unclear. After the Bolshevik Revolution, the Tsarist ambassador, Prince Nikolai Kuryachev, had been formally dismissed from the post by Moscow. Ignoring any communications from the Bolsheviks, Kuryachev, now a stateless white Russian émigré, continued to live on in the embassy buildings for a further three years, until the Peking, or Northern Government, Courted assiduously by Karakhan, withdrew its recognition, and Kuratchev had to vacate the premises in 1920. No Russian official had lived there for three years. With Kuratchev's family evicted, Karakhan took over the embassy. Technically, he was now the most senior foreign diplomat in China. He was an ambassador whereas all the others were mere envoy, extraordinary, and minister plenipotentiary, or simply minister, considered a diplomat of the second class. This automatically made him dean of the diplomatic corps and, so always, the closest foreign envoy to the senior Chinese leaders. Karakhan may have been a Bolshevik and publicly decried bourgeois manners, but... Personally, he liked a bit of pomp and circumstance and was a stylish man. On August 9, 1924, Katakan presented his credentials to the president of China, at that time the warlord Cao Quen. Time magazine wrote that he was clad in immaculate evening clothes, shod in shining leather, gloved in white kid, and wearing a glossy silk hat. He rode in a gilded stagecoach, a dusted-down relic of the Tsarist legation days, presumably, drawn by six ebony horses and escorted by 24 cavalrymen. Though he was in the northern capital, Karakhan continued to play both sides and immediately dispatched a telegram to Dr. Sun senator in the south, calling him an old friend of the new Russia. Sun replied, offering support and goodwill. This was a slightly odd move by Karakhan, as it indicated to the Beijing government that Karakhan's and, by extension, Moscow's support was ultimately for Sun and his rival southern government in Guangzhou. This was probably no surprise to the revolving series of northern warlords who took control of Beijing in the 1920s. Sun wrote to Karakhan telling him that if the Wai Pu China's Ministry of Foreign Affairs at the time, refused to recognize the Soviet Union, then Karakhan should move his embassy south to Guangzhou. Sun also told Karakhan that he had sent his own trusted chief of staff and confidential agent to Moscow to discuss ways and means whereby our friends there in Moscow can assist me in my work in this country, China." That trusted chief of staff and confidential agent's name? Chen Kai shek, Jiang Jie Shi. The Doyen. Katakan's progress was swift. He had crucially managed to establish Chinese recognition of the Soviet Union by May 1924. The Soviet legation had become a center for nationalist and radical activity in Beijing, helped by the northern warlord Feng Yuxiang. Conquering the capital that spring, the so-called Christian general had ousted the previous Zhili clique, invited Sun to Beijing, made an alliance with the Kuomintang, and expelled the last emperor, Puyi, from the Forbidden City. Things had turned around to the extent that Sun was able, after medical treatment in Japan, to travel by train to Beijing, where he was met at the station by Mikhail Borodin, Though by now, Sun's medical condition was acute, and he knew he was dying of liver cancer. The United States correspondence covering Beijing's politics now took the general view that the days of the old great powers holding sway were over, and that Katakan was all-powerful. He was said to occupy the best seat of honor whenever the Chinese president held a reception. And for the first time, a major power was seemingly on the inside track with the Chinese government, not by gunboat diplomacy, forcing unequal treaties or diplomatic pressure, but through apparent friendliness and support. Katakan was unafraid to call the British and the French imperialists while arguing against the American position put forward by the former American ambassador to China, Jacob Gould Sherman that China would evolve to full national strength. Not evolution, replied Karakhan, but revolution is what would return China's national strength. Such had been his rapid success in playing both sides and winning official recognition for the Soviet Union, that by 1925, Karakhan seemed to have felt that his time in Beijing was already coming to an end. It was the case that the domestic situation in northern China of endless warlord skirmishes, rival cliques, and factional subterfuge tired him. There was little to recommend favoring one warlord over another. The second round of the legation quarter was not wholly to his taste, endless balls, lavish dinners, but often with people he considered, quite rightly in many cases, his intellectual and social inferiors and whose politics he often found objectionable, a few obviously reciprocated by many. Karakhan thought that the interminable internal wranglings of China would never result in anything seriously revolutionary. In 1925, he spoke with Paul Blanchard of The Nation. Karakan told him that China was the rear-guard engagement in the international workers' struggle. Sun Yat-sen died in the Rockefeller-funded Peking Union Medical College just off Wang Fujin on March 12, 1925. He was just 58 years old. Katakan immediately ordered the red flag to be flown at half-mast over the Soviet embassy. He also ordered a specially made coffin from Moscow, identical to the one Lenin had been laid to rest in barely a year before. Sun Yat-sen's funeral procession through the streets of Beijing was held on March 19th. Karakhan occupied the prominent place of the chief mourner. The Black Prince Lev Karakhan returned home to Moscow in August 1925 the way he had come originally, heading up through Manchuria on the China Eastern Railway and then back across the vast hall of Siberia on the Trans-Siberian Express. Back in Moscow, he once again assumed the post of Deputy People's Commissar for Foreign Affairs. Karakhan remained closely involved with Russia's China policy and the activities of those colleagues still in China, including Borodin. Since Sun's death in April 1924, Chiang Kai-shek was now the major figure on the right of the Kuomintang though still in competition with his major rival on the left, Wang Jingwei. Eventually, Karakhan and Borodin decided that Jiang could be handled. It was not their best decision, ever. Passing through Moscow in 1929, Curzio Malaparte encountered Karakhan once again, noting, A tall, athletic man, his head proudly erect atop two broad shoulders. Karakhan, in his language, from eastern steppe, Means Black Prince, a Bolshevik for sure, but still a rather dandyish one, it seems. His clothes, his ties, his shoes, his shorts, his gloves all came from London by a diplomatic courier from the Soviet embassy in St. James Square. Karakhan finally married his ballerina Marina Semniova just before Stalin personally decided she should be transferred from Kirov to Bolshoi in Moscow. In 1934, Karakhan was appointed Soviet ambassador to Turkey. Marina was allowed to visit Paris to dance with Serge Lifar at the Paris Opera Ballet. Then, in 1937, Karakhan was recalled to Moscow. On September 20, 1937, he was, as he probably realized what was likely to happen, immediately arrested and summarily executed in Stalin's purges with a bullet. To the back of the head you've been listening to beijing's favorite bolshevik written by paul french paul french studied history economics and mandarin at university and was a master's in philosophy and economics from the university of glasgow he's the author of a number of books including the new york times best-selling and edgar award-winning midnight in peking Carl Crow, A Tough Old China Hand, and Through the Looking Glass China's Foreign Journalists From Opium Wars to Mao. Published in the China Project. Read to you by Cliff Larson.